Chapter Thirteen of the Decoration of Houses. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Decoration of Houses by Edith Wharton and Ogden Codman. Chapter Thirteen, The Dining Room. The dining room, as we know it, is a comparatively recent innovation in house planning. In the early Middle Ages, the noble and his retainers ate in the hall. Then the grand salle, built for ceremonial uses, began to serve as a banqueting room, while the meals eaten in private were served in the lord's chamber. As house planning adapted itself to the growing complexity of life, the medieval bedroom developed into a private suite of living rooms, preceded by an antechamber. And this antechamber, or one of the small adjoining cabinets, was used as the family dining-room, the banqueting-hall being still reserved for state entertainments. The plan of dining at haphazard in any of the family living-rooms persisted on the continent until the beginning of the eighteenth century. Even then, it was comparatively rare in France to see a room set apart for the purpose of dining. In small hotels and apartments people continued to dine in the antechamber. Where there were two antechambers the inner was used for that purpose, and it was only in grand houses, or in the luxurious establishments of the femme galante, that dining-rooms were to be found. Even in such cases the room described as a salle à manger was often only a central antechamber or saloon into which the living-rooms opened. Indeed, Madame du Barry's sumptuous dining-room at Lucien was a vestibule giving directly upon the peristyle of the villa. In England the act of dining seems to have been taken more seriously while the rambling outgrowths of the Elizabethan residence included a greater variety of rooms than could be contained in any but the largest houses, built on more symmetrical lines. Accordingly, in old English house-plans, we find rooms designated as dining-parlours. Many houses, in fact, contained two or three, each with a different exposure, so that they might be used at different seasons. These rooms can hardly be said to represent our modern dining-room, since they were not planned in connection with kitchen and offices, and were probably used as living-rooms when not needed for dining. Still, it was from the Elizabethan dining-parlour that the modern dining-room really developed, and so recently has it been specialised into a room used only for eating, that a generation ago old-fashioned people in England and America habitually used their dining-rooms to sit in. On the continent the incongruous uses of the rooms in which people dined made it necessary that the furniture should be easily removed. In the Middle Ages people dined at long tables composed of boards resting on trestles, while the seats were narrow wooden benches or stools, so constructed that they could easily be carried away when the meal was over. With the sixteenth century the table à tréteaux gave way to various folding tables with legs, and the wooden stools were later replaced by folding seats without arms, called perroquets. In the Middle Ages, when banquets were given in the Grand Salle, the plate was displayed on movable shelves covered with a velvet slip, or on elaborately carved dressers. But on ordinary occasions little silver was set out in French dining-rooms, and the great English sideboard, with its array of urns, trays, and wine-coolers, was unknown in France. In the common antechamber dining-room, whatever was needed for the table was kept in a press or cupboard with solid wooden doors, changes of service being carried on by means of serving-tables or servantes, 
narrow marble-topped consoles ranged against the walls of the room. For examples of dining-rooms, as we understand the term, one must look to the grand French houses of the eighteenth century, and to the same class of dwellings in England. In France such dining-rooms were usually intended for gala entertainments, the family being still served in antechamber or cabinet, but English houses of the same period generally contain a family dining-room, and another intended for state. The dining-room of Madame du Barry at Lucien, already referred to, was a magnificent example of the great dining-saloon. The ceiling was a painted Olympus, the white marble walls were subdivided by Corinthian pilasters with plinths and capitals of gilt bronze, surmounted by a frieze of bas-reliefs framed in gold. Four marble niches contained statues by Pajou, Lecomte, and Moineau, and the general brilliancy of effect was increased by crystal chandeliers, hung in the intercolluminations against a background of looking-glass. Such a room, the banqueting-hall of the official mistress, represents the courtesan's ideal of magnificence. Decorations as splendid but more sober and less theatrical marked the dining-rooms of the aristocracy, as at Choisy, Gaillon, and Rambouillet. The state dining-rooms of the eighteenth century were often treated with an order, niches with statues being placed between the pilasters. Sometimes one of these niches contained a fountain serving as a wine-cooler, a survival of the stone or metal wall-fountains in which dishes were washed, in the medieval dining-room. Many of these earlier fountains had been merely fixed to the wall, but those of the eighteenth century, though varying greatly in design, were almost always an organic part of the wall decoration. Sometimes, in apartments of importance, they formed the pedestal of a life-size group or statue, as in the dining-room of Madame de Pompadour, while in smaller rooms they consisted of a semicircular basin of marble projecting from the wall and surmounted by groups of cupids, dolphins, or classic attributes. The banqueting gallery of Trianon-sous-Bois contains in one of its longitudinal walls two wide niches with long marble basins, and Mariette's edition of Davilet's Cour d'Architecture gives the elevation of a recessed buffet flanked by small niches containing fountains. The following description, accompanying Davilet's plate, is quoted here as an instance of the manner in which elaborate compositions were worked out by the old decorators. The second antechamber, being sometimes used as a dining-room, is a suitable place for the buffet represented. This buffet, which may be encrusted with marble or stone, or panelled with woodwork, consists in a recess occupying one of the side walls of the room. The recess contains a shelf of marble or stone, supported on brackets, and surmounting a small stone basin, which serves as a wine-cooler. Above the shelf is an attic flanked by volutes, and over this attic may be placed a picture, generally a flower or fruit-piece, or the representation of a concert or some such agreeable scene, while in the accompanying plate the attic is crowned by a bust of Comus, wreathed with vines by two little satyrs, the group detaching itself against a trellis background enlivened with birds. The composition is completed by two lateral niches for fountains, adorned with masks, tritons, and dolphins of gilded lead. These built-in sideboards and fountains were practically the only feature distinguishing the old dining-rooms from other gala apartments. At a period when all rooms were painted, panelled, or hung with tapestry, no special style of decoration was thought needful for the dining-room, though tapestry was seldom used, for the practical reason that stuff hangings are always objectionable in a room intended for eating.
towards the end of the seventeenth century when comfortable seats began to be made an admirably designed dining-room chair replaced the earlier benches and perroquet the eighteenth-century dining-chair is now often confounded with the light chaise volante used in drawing-rooms and cabinet-makers frequently sell the latter as copies of old dining-chairs these were in fact much heavier and more comfortable and whether cane-seated or upholstered were invariably made with wide deep seats so that the long banquets of the day might be endured without constraint or fatigue while the backs were low and narrow in order not to interfere with the service of the table in england the state dining-room was decorated much as it was in france the family dining-room was simply a plain parlour with wide mahogany sideboards or tall glazed cupboards for the display of plate and china the solid english dining-chairs of mahogany if less graceful than those used on the continent are equally well adapted to their purpose the foregoing indications may serve to suggest the lines upon which the dining-room decoration might be carried out in the present day the avoidance of all stuff hangings and heavy curtains is of great importance it will be observed that even window curtains were seldom used in old dining-rooms such care being given to the decorative detail of window and embrasure that they needed no additional ornament in the way of drapery a bare floor of stone or marble is best suited to the dining-room but where the floor is covered it should be with a rug not with a nailed-down carpet the dining-room should be lit by wax candles inside applique or in a chandelier and since anything tending to produce heat and to exhaust air is especially objectionable in a room used for eating the walls should be sufficiently light in colour to make little artificial light necessary in the dining-rooms of the last century in england as well as on the continent the colour scheme was usually regulated by this principle the dark dining-room panelled with mahogany or hung with sombre leather is an invention of our own times it has already been said that the old family dining-room was merely a panelled parlour sometimes the panels were of light unvarnished oak but oftener they were painted in white or in some pale tint easily lit by wax candles the walls were often hung with fruit or flower pieces or with pictures of fish and game a somewhat obvious form of adornment which it has long been the fashion to ridicule but which was not without decorative value and appropriateness pictures representing life and action often grow tiresome when looked at over and over again day after day a fact which the old decorators probably had in mind when they hung what the french call nature morte in the dining-room concerning the state dining-room that forms a part of many modern houses little remains to be said beyond the descriptions already given of the various gala apartments it is obvious that the banqueting hall should be less brilliant than a ballroom and less fanciful in decoration than a music-room a severer and more restful treatment naturally suggests itself but beyond this no special indications are required the old dining-rooms were usually heated by porcelain stoves such a stove of fine architectural design set in a niche corresponding with that which contains the fountain is of great decorative value in the composition of the room and as it has the advantage of giving out less concentrated heat than an open fire it is specially well suited to a small or narrow dining-room where some of the guests must necessarily sit close to the hearth most houses which have banquet halls contain also a smaller apartment called a breakfast-room but as this generally corresponds in size and usage with the ordinary family dining-room the same style of decoration is applicable to both however ornate the banquet-hall may be 
the breakfast-room must of course be simple and free from gilding the more elaborate the decorations of the larger room the more restful such a contrast will be found of the dinner-table as we now know it little need be said the ingenious but ugly extension table with a central support now used all over the world is an english invention there seems no reason why the general design should not be improved without interfering with the mechanism of this table but of course it can never be so satisfactory to the eye as one of the old round or square tables with four or six tapering legs such as were used in eighteenth-century dining-rooms before the introduction of the extension End of chapter 13